Tim, you and I just finished the final two episodes of Twin Peaks, The Return, a little under 24 hours ago. In fact, I think maybe we were starting part 17 about 24 hours ago. Right about now. Yeah. Uh, yesterday. And and you've spent the last two and a half weeks just mainlining yeah. the whole Twin Peaks universe. I watched Twin Peaks the first time maybe about six, seven years ago, and... But I didn't get past the second season. I didn't get very far into the second season either. Right. It was something I was doing with my family when I was visiting them. And then I think when I got back to New York, which is where I was living at the time, I just kind of lost interest. But yeah, uh, the last two and a half, maybe three weeks, watching all of Twin Peaks, um, watching Blue Velvet, watching the new Twin Peaks, watching Firewalk with me, watching Mulholland Drives. There's been a whole lot of David Lynch for the last for the last two three weeks and I, I remember growing up um we only had two channels be because you know i come from a rural area and so i would see these commercials yeah for twin peaks i distinctly recall the scene where there is a llama in the sheriff's office <laughs> and dale cooper is there yeah i remember seeing maybe bits of the red room but I had no idea what this show was. How old would you, would you have been by then? Um, I might have been 10, 11 years old. Okay. Um, I'm not, I'm guessing. Um, yeah. 92, well, no, yeah. Were these probably, reruns or when it was at? I think when it was this live. was the rerun. Okay. When it, when it was being um, um, syndicated yeah. on uh, Showtime. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that the same Showtime as... Showtime now that the return aired on, or is that a different Showtime? I believe it's the same. Okay, um, I'm not sure, uh, but I do remember that the first Twin Peaks that I really saw was Fire Walk with Me. Yeah, and I saw it on an old VHS tape. So you started with the movie. I did because I was just interested in David Lynch. Yeah, and getting into that uh, was really interesting because I had no expectations based on the series of characters that should be in it, plot lines that should be resolved. I just enjoyed the music, the mystery, the characters. I loved the the story revolving around Laura Palmer, the horror of her situation. Yeah. And But that means you found out the whole mystery of who killed Laura Palmer before you started the series. I guess I never really cared, to okay. be honest. All right. um, I was never really interested in that mystery because the deeper mysteries of the show were so much more interesting and the yeah. moods of the show. And um, a lot of it was just me imagining what this show could possibly be when I was 10 years old. And it seemed like such a mysterious and groundbreaking show even then when I knew nothing about it. And then watching, you know, all of Lynch's work, um, going back recently and watching from beginning to end the original series. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, anxiously awaiting the return, watching it, and then um, getting you in- involved and in talking about it. And um, here we are now. Yeah, here we are now. We're uh, talking all about the finale, the last episode or two of The Return. And really just the whole series, because yeah. I, I think the reason why we're talking about this show is because it it's meaningful now. It represents something. It's not just because it's twin peaks on the air again yeah um it's not like girl meets world 
Yeah. Like it's not just a, a sequel to a show that once was popular. Right. It's not like Fuller House or anything like that. It feels a lot, it feels like a much bigger deal than those fluffy TV shows, you know? Absolutely. And I have a theory about what this, what's going on in this new show. Yeah. Um, I'm going to lay it out for you and I'm interested in what you are yep. uh, thinking as well. So my theory um, kind of comes from what's been going on in the media um, in terms of, you know, a lot of new reports coming out in the last few years about just these alarming um, statistics uh, about the middle class of America and specifically the white middle class and uh, uneducated, you know, white people, rural America. So let's get into some theories about what what's going on in this series and what this series was really about. Yeah. Because I think it's pretty relevant for today. Um, for me, what struck me was reading a lot of news articles about the decline of uh, middle America and rural America. I, I pulled up a bunch of New York Times headlines that I found really applied to this show. I'll just read them for you right now. Uh, number one, death rates rising for middle-aged white Americans, study mm-hmm. finds. Yeah. Number two, opioid epidemic drug overdose deaths are rising faster than ever. Oh, yeah. Uh, I agree. If, if I think if if Twin Peaks were a real place, it would absolutely be hit, be hit by the opioid crisis going on now. Uh, number three, U.S. suicide rates surges to a 30-year high. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what a lot of people look for in Twin Peaks is this kind of um, surreal, uh, eccentric take on rural America. Yeah. And I think what the the new show is, is really about is kind of, it's responding to the social decline of America um, in terms of deindustrialization of rural America. Yeah. In terms of the opioid epidemic, in terms of rising suicide rates, um, in terms of social alienation, mm-hmm. uh, gun violence. There's so much in terms of what's been going on in America that I find represented in the the return and i think what they're they're doing is representing it but mixing it with their own kind of surrealist uh almost mysticism that's always been part of the show yeah you mean like the lore the lore yeah yeah the this mix of you know mark frost's mythology Mm -hmm. and david lynch's just kind of like you know tm inspired uh surrealism right um, so what do you think in terms of just Twin Peaks, the return as being kind of sociology in a way? Oh, I agree with you completely. Um, everything that you've mentioned, I mean, you've got Dr. Jacoby talking about shovel your way out of the shit. Right. You know, and he's just going on and on about, uh, you know, corporate conspiracies and how uh, everything is... Everyone is kind of playing a game against you, and you're always going to lose. Right. And he's not really providing any evidence for what he's he's talking about, and it's in spite of that. But maybe because that he's that he's not providing any evidence, that people just eat this up. Right. You know. And you know, regarding the gun violence, there's plenty of gun violence here. There was that guy who pulled a gun on uh, Tim Roth and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character because they were in his in his driveway. Yeah. This you Polish know? accountant, who, yeah, out of uh, nowhere, a Polish accountant, and um, there's 
that's definitely a comment on the the gun violence that goes on and you know the movies or at school as well as the kids who while uh bobby and shelly yeah are having a conversation in in the double r yep. um there's just a gunshot that rings out and it's a kid who's who, just found a gun in the back seat of a car right that he's riding in right yeah and then as well like right behind them there's this hysterical screaming woman and her her daughter or what thought, we think of as her daughter yeah. or niece that's afflicted by this strange disease or something she seems like a zombie almost yeah and but you know the weird thing about that bit is also that you don't really get the sense that there's anyone sick there until later because it makes it sound like she's late for dinner or right. something like she just keeps talking about how she's being held up yeah you know but there's there's definitely all you know there's so many people living in in trailer parks and everything well, there's a really heartbreaking moment when a guy um says he's he's going into town to sell blood yeah and, that was really uh, powerful carl rod kind of helps him out yeah um says i don't like it when people have to sell their blood just to eat right and know? that's a kind of comment i think on the economic hardship yep. that's going on but and that that comes right on the heels of hearing how much work this guy has been doing yeah he said did you uh examples like did you mow the lawn did you get paid for that? Right. No. Right. Did you do this? Did you get paid for that? No. And that's why he's selling blood. As well as the uh, the suicide of uh, Steve? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Steve. Um, that just kind of... He's not a particularly good guy in the no. show, um, but he's commits suicide. Um it's never directly shown, but that's that's the assumption. Yeah. Um, there's a a number of scenes of kind of sick people or, or people who are beaten. Um, there's there's just the drunk in the jail. At the, the drunk end. in the jail is disgusting. Oh, he, he is just repulsive. There there is so many fights at the roadhouse as well. There's yeah. there's a lot of infidelity that's that's being suggested, and I believe a really powerful image at the beginning of this series in episode one is when you see the sawmill that's it's just been shuttered yeah you know, the what's been keeping this town going um is it's just stopped partly because of the fire presumably right. that happened in the original series. but i mean they never they never got it going again they never rebuilt it yeah and um everything that kind of made the the town a, a kind of wholesome place um has been just totally demolished. I mean, it's such a common theme in Lynch's work that you see an explore, uh, an exploration of kind of like Americana, beautiful, wholesome mm-hmm. Americana. Uh, the opening of Blue Velvet is a perfect yep. example where you see white picket fences and yeah. roses. and. But then it leads to a guy getting a heart attack on his yard. Well, that's the underbelly. Right. And you get a sense in Lynch's work that early on there is a center of america there is a kind of wholesome a surface yep and an underbelly to that and what you get a a strong sense of in the return is that there is no underbelly because the underbelly is the surface the surface of america especially rural america is just this insane violent sick decaying thing yeah with a few kind of um odds good people or good things that happen, but the prevailing 
trend is towards, you know, these really destructive things happening. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, there are a few instances of um, comments or commentary on uh, healthcare in America too. Mm -hmm. There's that school teacher who gets beat up by Richard Horn to to an inch of her life. Right. And she needs surgery, but she has no health insurance. And she's a school teacher. Right. She's a school teacher who can't afford her medical bills. And then um, to a much lesser extent, there's that girl, I think at the end of part nine, who has a a really terrible rash under her arm. And that seems like such a quick fix, but you kind of get the, the feeling like she probably can't afford to go to get a consultation about that either. And she's probably addicted to drugs. And she's the one who keeps getting fired from her job because yeah. she keeps going in high. Yeah. You know, and that's not really to pardon her, but that kind of shows you, again, how the underbelly is taking over Twin Peaks. Well, there you get very few moments where you see, like, the nice surface reality. Yeah. And, and the few instances where you do, it's immediately interrupted by um, this, you know, lurking um, malevolence, like, Shelly and Bobby together. Yep. And then Red appears outside the window, this mm-hmm. uh, seedy drug dealer type. Yep. Um, she's never gotten past falling in love with the, the wrong people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even as even their kid, Becky. Yeah. Becky's in the exact same type of relationship that Shelly was in. And in Laura original. Palmer, in a way. She's addicted yeah. to drugs. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve and her boyfriend is, is dealing drugs mm-hmm. and uh, abusive. Um, domestic turmoil is, is a prevailing theme here. Yeah. Um, but there's such a sense of hopelessness about, you know, this town and where it's going to go. Um, and now I know you had a slightly different take on what this was kind of all about. Right. Well, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. I mean, as far as the themes go. Um, that was something because you started the series before I did. Right. And even before I had started the return, you were already talking to me about how this is the, the decline of middle class America and everything. Right. You know, so I was always very aware of that. Right. Watching it. But especially after having seen the finale, because there was a question that I was wondering going into the finale or the last two parts, part 17 and 18, was will we have questions answered? Because there were so many questions after part 16. Right. Was, um, you know, for instance, what, what happened to Audrey? That right. was a big question. Right. What happened to Richard? Is Richard actually dead? Because he's electrocuted to hell and then just disappears. But what happened to him? So there was a whole, stuff, a whole lot of things like that, like will we have questions answered? Right. And then it turns out, no, we're not going to have many questions answered, if any. There's a lot of loose threads. There's a lot, a lot of loose ends. I mean, Audrey didn't even appear in the last two episodes. Right. She didn't appear at all. Right. You know, uh, there are still so many things, um, you know, all these names that are being thrown out like Billy. We don't know who Billy is. I kind of think Billy is the drunk in the cell. But, you know, we didn't get that answered. That's, that's been a suspicion for a while yeah. that Billy was the drunk in the cell, but yeah. it, it's, it's totally left hanging. Yeah, it, it's left hanging. So I think overall, the way that I've kind of made peace with the ending, so to speak, and because I didn't dislike the ending, I didn't dislike anything, 
what I think I might have liked a bit of a tighter resolution because I wasn't I was never expecting there was going to be a second part of the return but I think the way that I kind of came to appreciate it was that Twin Peaks the Return is kind of like a very elaborate joke with a very long setup that you're just waiting for the punchline but then the punchline is some anticlimactic pun or something like that. Something really goofy, but not really funny, not really worth the payoff. But that in itself is the joke, is that you're, you're just getting fed all of, all of this information in anticipation of something that never comes. And I think right there is why you can appreciate the return. And in a sense, the original Twin Peaks. Because in the original Twin Peaks, Dale Cooper goes through all of this just to become the very evil that he's fighting. Right. And this as well, in The Return, you go through all of this, you know, 16 hours, 18 hours, just for nothing to get answered. The real Dale Cooper you want to see not really showing up. He shows up very briefly. And then, you know, there's the two characters, Dale and Laura, have time-traveled. And that's it. When I think about it like that, it was just an elaborate joke. Not mean-spirited or anything like that, but just as a work of art in itself. Just an elaborate joke with a very long setup and no real punchline. That's something to admire right there. Absurdity. An absurd... Absurdity, exactly. In, in the full meaning of that. Yeah, because... And that's kind of reflective on the absurd situation that these innocent, hardworking, middle-class people... Uh, are finding themselves in like they're just their lives have just fallen apart um, middle-class America is falling apart everything is absurd these days it's an absurd situation and um, I think that's made even more relevant after one of my favorite moments in the whole series which is Gordon Cole's turnip joke right you know, he, he's talking about a, a to a French woman who says uh, someone that she knows who's a, a turnip farmer. Is that right? A turnip yeah. farmer is uh, missing. And then he just says, all right, well, don't worry. He'll turn up eventually. Right. And there's no payoff. No right. one's laughing. Albert's not laughing. Gordon Cole's not laughing. And he just says it doesn't translate well. She's French. Right. And that's kind of, to me, how the whole series ends up. Right. It's just an elaborate joke with a stupid punchline. But that's. That's the point. Well, I actually, I think it's it's profound, the ending, um, because I think you got to take the the return as a name for this series. It's yeah. not called Twin Peaks Season 3. It's oh, no, called The no. Return. I never approached it as Season 3. Right, but The Return has a special meaning. And I think not only is the show commenting on the social reality of America, but it's also addressing the desire for a lot of Americans to return to an imagined um, better past. For a lot of people, things probably were better in in a lot of ways um, in the past. Right. Um, you can look at Twin Peaks from the original series and look at it now. It was better in so many ways back then. Um, and it's addressing this desire to return this nostalgia for the past both in the minds of you know middle-class americans struggling but also in the minds of twin peaks viewers wanting to see 
coffee and cherry pie yeah. and all of these things. They want to see Audrey from the start. They want to see all of these moments come back. Yeah. And they want to be back in this world with the same familiar characters, the same familiar stories. They want the to see Dale Cooper. The same familiar music. There wasn't a lot of the, the music used at all. And Exactly. It was, know, it was intentionally unsettling and disturbing. Yeah. And, and um, I also think, and this is what makes it very profound for me, is that not only is it addressing the social conditions and the nostalgia for the past, but it's also doing, at the same time, addressing the media landscape of all of these reboots and remakes mm -hmm. and revivals of old shows and old movies yeah. that in a weird way are, are trying to, I think, comfort people who are you know, longing for a, a, a past version of America, an America from their childhood. And it's really taking on the idea of what does it mean to return to something, both in, in terms of trying to go back to your own social reality from the past, but also a movie or a TV show trying to go back and recapture something from the past and remake it or revisit it. And I think it's it's addressing that in a very profound way because its answer or its, its response is that the only thing you can really return to is trauma in a way. The only thing that returns, at least in these social conditions, is the trauma of the past. Yeah. It's the trauma of Laura Palmer. It's the failure of Dale Cooper to solve this, to to prevent another murder from happening. It's the same sort of town going through these same changes, repeating it again and again, never to escape its essential problems. And I think there's there's no better representation than this, than just that scream of mm -hmm. Laura Palmer, which comes up again and again in every iteration of this yeah. show. This bone-chilling scream. It's such an impressive shriek, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. She but it's, just it's has so a... full of, like, it's, it's horrifying, but it's also very sad. Yeah. Because it's just the most primal... Um, scream of this this woman who's gone through such a traumatic event and it signals that the the trauma of the past can't be extinguished simply by finding the killer or simply by the town you know recovering and getting over it there is something that's kind of that supersedes those things or that that over overflows from that and you see that in a lot of Lynch's work, I think. Well, at the same time, showing that, you know, for a TV show to return to the, the same landscape that was there before is not a comforting thing, mm -hmm. nor should it be. Yeah. The show's ultimate moral statement, I think, is that returning is a very painful thing. And uh, there's, there was a great quote that I read in terms of uh, how they kind of structured uh, the story, how they presented the characters from the, the, the original series. Okay. It said Cooper wasn't simply gone for all those episodes, you know, in the guise of Dougie Jones. Sure. He was being strategically withheld uh -huh. until we simply couldn't bear a world without him or the violent, cruel place it had become. And I, I think that goes, that strategic withholding goes for every character. Yeah. Audrey, Cooper, Shelley, Norma, 
Ed, mm-hmm. uh, James, they all were withheld strategically until they played a place in the story. Dougie Jones only exists because he's a concoction of of Evil Cooper. And it's because of this plan that Evil Cooper has to not return to the Black Lodge that Dale Cooper is stuck as as Dougie Jones. So this whole time that you want to see Dale Cooper, you can't. And it's all Evil Coop's fault. Mm. And that, in a sense, I think adds a lot of heat to Evil Coop and it just makes you hate the character even more and makes him even that much more despicable. Yeah, it's true. Um, he is the cause for the audience not getting Dale Cooper. Yeah, he is the very reason why you don't get the Dale Cooper that you want. Right. It's and- all Evil Coop's fault. So it becomes his his uh, evil becomes much more personal, yeah. and, and relatable. Yeah, um, yeah, you're you're totally right. I mean, it was kind of a a typical brilliant Lynch Frost creation where it seems so such a bizarre choice at first, but then when you pick it apart, it seems like the perfect choice. Yeah, Dale Cooper was kind of the heart and soul of the show. What a lot of people look forward to seeing again. Um, a comforting figure amidst, you know, so much horror. Yeah. And to have him taken away was a bold step. But I think there was a, a real purpose behind that. I, I originally found Dougie Jones a little grating. Yeah. When episode three came around, I found it kind of funny, but a little hokey and mm-hmm. repetitive. I felt like I got it. I felt like I'd seen this kind of character in being there. And... um you know, this kind of idiot savant. Yeah. Um, so I felt it was a little cliched and repetitive, but I, there was something about a moment when the, the one-armed man said, please come back. Yeah, you have to wake up. You have to wake up. It kind of struck me that Dougie Jones is um, being denied, strategically denied or withheld yeah. The return of of Dale Cooper was was really mirroring the desire of people to see, you know, this good force come back yeah. and return. But also, I think Dougie Jones, you know, with uh, Janie and Sonny Jim, it kind of gave us an opportunity to see a kind of middle class success story. I'd say. Because they, they find themselves in trouble with loan sharks. Um, the original Dougie Jones was cheating mm-hmm. on his wife. They have plenty of problems. There are people out to kill him, in fact. But I, I really think going on this journey with, with Dougie Jones and, and Janie and, and the whole family was a way of examining the American dream. Yep. Um, not only is a contrast to the horrors of what Twin Peaks has become and uh, a chance for them to kind of have some fun with some comedy and stuff, but also just kind of the fraudulence of what the American dream has become mm-hmm. because you have a family that's, that's given wealth and that, you know, through seemingly their, their hard work or persistence has been able to, you know, um, rise above their their social uh, circumstances, but it's totally a fraud. I mean, not only was Janie's husband manufactured by Evil Coop to keep him out of the lodge, um, but her love and affection for him only grows the more he 
physically looks attractive the minute that she notices in the doctor's office that he's much more in shape yep but he also provides her with a car and money Mm -hmm. and sunny jim with a a playset even though he's a vegetable right yeah and there's a certain tragedy in that nobody seems to really notice or care that dougie jones just totally changed physically yeah i mean within seconds yeah jade goes to the the bathroom she comes back he's much thinner and is wearing different clothes and has a different haircut yeah and she's kind of like oh uh, and he's vomited this poison yeah this weird garmon bosia concoction stuff and she's like what's going on why you know you've changed okay let's go yeah (laughs) he gets home um after a few days presumably of being gone janie's upset but the minute she sees the money that he's got, mm-hmm. things okay. change. Well, I'll accept you. you know? And the office doesn't really seem to mind or care that he's gone either. They just no. kind of say stuff like, oh, well, hey, you were on a bender, weren't you? Right. You know? You know, I, I think Lynch and Frost do have affection and empathy for Janie E and, and Sonny Jim, especially. But you just cannot deny that this whole thing, this whole kind of American dream story that they live throughout the return is a total fraud. Yeah. And I think they are commenting on how the American dream itself has just become totally fraudulent while empathizing with the people caught up in trying to realize it. Dougie Jones was a very uh, profound character in that sense because, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what's going on in Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks itself is kind of the decline, maybe like the more noticeable in terms of the, the physical decline of the middle class, whereas this is uh, how success and money can even turn you into just a zombie and and self-perfection yeah but yeah you're very right Uh, they they almost prefer him as a zombie Mm -hmm. than as kind of like a uh person exercising their free will yeah Uh, but also you know being complicated for that way i guess in in a way the perfect um subject of the american dream is just this zombie who looks you know, walks walks through life, you know, just getting yeah. lucky. So Dougie Jones in the end, I know there were a lot of people who hated them. Perversely, in, in a weird way, I liked watching Lynch and Frost do something bold or unexpected and yeah. watching it drive people crazy hmm. because Lynch has been around for a long time. If you don't know his tendency to do this, I mean, what did you expect? You know, he was yeah. not going to spoon feed anything or make anything easy yeah. or go anything the normal the normal route. I like that you said he wasn't going to make anything easy because there's so many things here, even before you know you're not going to get any explanations, they're just frustrating to watch. Every scene Audrey was in right. with her husband Charlie was very frustrating to watch because they keep talking about people you don't know. It's so disorientating. It's it's very disorienting. Yeah, it's very disorienting. Um they're just talking as if they've explained everything to you and that as if they're developed characters and they're not. We've never met her husband, Charlie, before. I, I think almost every setup in this show, and the Audrey is a good example, um, was set up for a reason that oftentimes, uh, and I'd say the Audrey, in the Audrey case it did, when it was revealed why what the setup was or was for, it was genuinely shocking or horrifying or, you know, just totally uh, made you want to applaud, you know, like the return of Coop. Um, now, 
where they went with that next was not always or almost never, you know, satisfying. But then again, you know, as an audience, should you demand personal satisfaction from from everything you consume or everything you see? You can demand you it all you want, but you shouldn't necessarily ex- expect to receive it all right. the time. I agree. And and this, uh, this article from The Ringer continues, and another great quote, it says, uh, but instead of being comforting and unchanged, Twin Peaks turned out to be deeply sad. Yeah. Such is the natural result of our culture's current mania for what used to be. Lynch and Frost simply had the guts to point it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's ultimately why this is such a profound show. Yeah. It changes what TV is about, both as a new original, you know, form of programming with the possibilities for new types of shows, but also reviving or returning to an old show or old movie and carrying it forward. So uh, on so many levels, this is a really profound show most if not all tv show reboots would kind of just try to do the same thing that they did before right just like well you like this 20 years ago you like this 15 years ago we're just going to do this again because we know that you liked it fan service that's what arrested development tried to do right you know what f- five years ago or something like that um when they did season four right. they called it season four and they said, well, this is what would have happened if we had done a season four. Right. And they tried to do and it. And it couldn't have been the same. Yeah. They couldn't get all the actors together. And it wasn't the same. Yeah. And Twin Peaks, with everyone being a lot older, with the social situation being very different now than it was in 1990... Of course it was going to be different. And they went in that direction. They went in a completely different direction. Well, and that's such a good point to mention how everyone has aged. Because it's, it's something that the show, uh, you know, shows openly. They're not yeah. trying to hide that anyone's no. age. It's front and center. There are yeah. so many old people in this show. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a show or a movie with quite so many elderly people in it. When and Ed Hurley, I think, is a great example. He yeah. he looks very old. And he, he came out of he was retired for seventeen years. Yeah, and he came out of retirement to do this show. And so, I mean, aging is such a big part of this yeah. as well. Just kind of showing is I think when you go with younger a younger cast, uh, it's much easier to get caught up in the glamour and the yeah. romanticism of these young people in, in high school or university. But when you take people out of that situation. It's a, it's a much starker reality. Um, well, maybe now might be a good time to get into the ending. Yeah. And, you know, your reactions, your thoughts about what it mm. meant. Right. Um, well, if you just want to talk about the ending, you just want to talk about the ending? I think we should treat the, the two final episodes as the finale. As the finale. Okay. Um, all right. Well, well, in that case, let's start with uh, part 17. Let's start with part 17. Before we watched these episodes, I asked you some questions. I said, what do you expect from these episodes? And I think we both kind of agreed that maybe part 17 might move plot. Part 18 would just be grand and really weird. Yeah. And in some ways we were correct, but we were a bit surprised with how much plot moved ahead in part 17. How quickly. How quickly, because... About what a half hour in of a fifty-seven minute episode, and uh, Evil Coop is dead. Yeah, you know, 
Um, so Evil Coop dies within, you know, a half hour. And he is punched by that British kid with a really powerful glove. Yeah. What, three, four times? Um, Bob is, yeah. Bob is, yeah, yeah. Bob, not not Dale. Yeah, Bob. Uh, Bob in an orb. Right. Yeah, is punched like three or four times. And is this maybe maybe destroyed probably not shattered that particular orb is shattered sure um and in that sense that kid fulfills his destiny um and then the next episode a whole lot of driving well there there's the uh Laura Palmer return to the past and and him yeah. leaving Laura Palmer return to the red room him and Diane kind of mm-hmm. reunite and and then yeah they enter this what appears to be an alternate dimension yeah Things got really weird in that last episode because part the end of part 16, the Dale Cooper we've been waiting for returns. Right. Right. He's awake 100% um, as they're driving into uh, Twin Peaks in part 17. Uh, he says, is the coffee on? You know, right. like, this is the Dale Cooper we've been waiting for. And then shortly after Bob is punched and Evil Cooper is, is, is gone – that kind of charisma just kind of starts to fade and he kind of does start to revert back to his uh, speaking pattern and kind of facial expressions that he was carrying as evil coop. Well, it's, I think a comment on um, how an audience expects a character to just come back. Yeah. And in general, they're, they're just kind of yearning for a hero or something from the past, something familiar and comforting to come back instantly and be there and do what it used to do and make them happy yeah and what you have is a guy who's been trapped in this surreal kind of limbo for 25 years and then spent some time trapped in someone else's body and then you know jumped out or or, or escaped from that became what he used to be very quickly i mean that's not how life works. And I think the show very quickly reverts back to, well, there are some effects from having been trapped for so long. Yeah. And this is what they are. I mean, he, not only is he obsessed with getting, you know, making the, writing the wrongs of, of the Laura Palmer case, right. but also Judy mm-hmm. and uh, Zhao Day, yeah. the, uh, the kind of major force of evil uh, presumably the mother of all evil that uh, w- was presented earlier on. Um, do you think? Do you think there was any intention of having Dale come back? You know, quote unquote, come back. Um, do you think there was any intention of that being fan service, or do you think David Lynch does fan service? Because he's back for such a short time. So do you think there was anything in there that was kind of like, well, you guys have been waiting for a long time. Here you go. And that's that. I think uh, Lynch and Frost were very aware of what an audience wanted. And they used that as a plot device to build anticipation and excitement and suspense. But also, again, I think to comment um, or, or play with audience expectation and comment on the kind of moment we're at right now where we yearn for these characters to come back. Um, I think they used it. They were aware of what was what an audience wanted, what this kind of cultural moment was in terms of, you know, reruns and returns, and they just used it 
to create an effect. But it was, it's always, with Lynch, and Lynch and Frost's work, it's always in service of prolonging a mystery or delving deeper into a mystery. I don't think they've ever been interested in, this is a checklist of what fans want, let's do it for them. Uh, Let's get into the stuff that goes on in episode 18. Yeah. With Cooper and Diane Mm -hmm. and their kind of journey into this alternate dimension, because there's... A lot to digest there. And yeah. There's a lot of theories kind of floating around about what this meant mm-hmm. and if this is indeed the end. Yeah. So Philip Jeffries is now a, a tea kettle. Right. And um, there's a lot of steam billowing out. And uh, Philip Jeffries sends out that symbol uh, to Coop that Hawk was really afraid of. Hawk said, you don't want to know what the symbol is. You never want to know what that symbol is. And it turns out to be one of those electricity, electric pylons you Wait, know. I thought he he sent out the symbol on the owl ring, and I thought that kind of morphed into what we thought was an eight. Looked like it was an eight. Well, first first it was what looked to be that like, um, like those electric those electric things, those mm-hmm. electric pylon things, and then it mm-hmm. kind of morphed into what looked like a number eight, and which probably in retrospect was a infinity sign or infinity loop, but it was sideways. Right. 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 Um. So. They go to a whole bunch of these electric pylons kind of in a row. and 430 miles away. Yeah, 430 firemen. miles away. Exactly. Um, and then they kind of drive and then they find themselves in Texas, in Odessa, Texas. Maybe. We're not sure yet. I mean, they, they, do drive, they find themselves on a dark highway and they end up in a hotel. Mm-hmm. And... Cooper goes to check into the hotel. Diane sees herself outside. They go into the hotel and make love in a very strange way. But here's the thing. When Cooper wakes up, he's in a different hotel. Yeah, he's in a different hotel, and he's Richard. Yeah. And And she's she's, Linda. Yeah, she's Linda. Presumably, because we never see her, but she must be. Mm -hmm. And then I guess he's in Odessa then. Yeah, 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 you're right. He's he's in Odessa the second time he wakes up, not the first time. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, he eventually finds Laura and tries to take her back home, and we get this horrifying ending yeah. in Twin Peaks. Because, I mean, it's horrifying from the moment that he finds Laura, because yeah. Laura's just presumably killed a guy. Yeah. There's a dead guy sitting in her couch, and there are flies on its head. Yeah. And she's living as uh, Carrie something. Her name is Carrie. Yeah. Carrie Page or something like Carrie that. Carrie Page. Yeah, and she's living as Carrie. And um, she's definitely Laura. She's definitely Laura Palmer. Well, it's Cheryl Lee. We know that. Well, um, yeah, Cheryl Lee. But we don't know in this world if she is Laura. Um, there seems to be flashes of recognition uh, well, when he why, says things. Well, that's why it seems like she probably is Laura because there are flashes of recognition. And, of course, the way that the show ends, she definitely recognizes the house her house in Twin Peaks by the end. Yeah, but it's it's presented so strangely. I mean, when they go to the house and they knock on the door and you wonder who shows up and then it's this this woman. Yep. Who uh is never not... seen before, never mentioned before. Right. We get a few names that are familiar from the old series like mm-hmm. a Miss Tremont. Yeah. And um uh, but there's this amazing moment at the end which I mean, I had no idea how to digest it or even what to think about it, but it's been in my head ever since I've seen it which Cooper asks, what year is this? He's shocked that... Yeah. And we hear from the house, Sarah Palmer say, Laura. Yeah. 
and it's kind of happens simultaneously as Laura is screaming. It it, it triggers the scream. I yeah. rewatched it, and then she starts screaming, and the the lights flicker out in the house. Yep, yep. And it goes dark, and then you see her whispering into his ear as the credits roll. Yeah. And what does this mean? Yeah. I thought about maybe it's um, if they've gone into a different dimension or they've gone into a different time. The the flickering lights, the hearing of Laura, her kind of getting her memory back could potentially be potentially like the dimensions kind of bumping into each other. Mm. Like they've kind of crossed into one or if it's not the dimensions themselves, it's maybe them bumping into you know, they've crossed the threshold, but maybe they're kind of floating temporarily kind of in between the two mm-hmm. and it's showing up that way mm-hmm. through the lights flickering on and on off what uh, Laura is hearing and Laura's memories that are causing her to scream because mm-hmm. she doesn't remember up to that point. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm convinced I was convinced that it was a setup for another season mm-hmm. um, and it still could be the case, but we can get into that a little bit yeah. later. Um, what I I've been thinking about today mm-hmm. is if it is a self-contained series and this is the end. Yeah. Um, I think you just have to go back to the title of the show. I mean, it's, it's a return. He's returning. We expected the return to be the return of Dale Cooper, the return of Twin Peaks back to its, its, you know, old state. Um, and the return of the Twin Peaks to the TV world that it kind of gave so much to and transformed when it originally came out. And we find out that the, the return is kind of an impossibility, but to the extent that anything returns, it's just this deep, horrifying terror and dislocation. The return is is maybe just you know, the trauma of, of Laura Palmer. Um, and to the extent that that connects to what had been going on in the show, it might just be this this endless game of alternate dimensions yeah, or different fields of reality where Judy is kind of continually winning by keeping Laura from ever, you know, becoming herself again or, or or finding her way back the mm-hmm. return is maybe just the return of this this constant play of of um kind of this evil force coming back or this this trauma of yeah. this this small town if that figure that philip jeffrey sent out is not a number 8 and if it's an infinity symbol but sideways uh that could imply that you know, there could be some sort of like an infinite number of universes kind of stacked on top of each other or something right. like that, or dimensions kind of stacked on top of each other. Right. I, I don't like that a lot because it, it you can read it in a kind of like um, theoretical physics sort of yeah. way. Um, it, it can become scientific yeah, and lose all its mystery. Mm-hmm. Or it can become too mystical and kind of like explainable in terms of other mystical terms. For me, there's kind of two concepts that make it interesting, like the the return of the repressed, the kind of psychoanalytic term where something buried deep within you will come back into your consciousness at Mm -hmm. some point, um, which you see kind of with, with Laura kind of 
to her horror, recognizing something about this town and just screaming. Yeah. Um, but also the idea of the eternal return and the idea that there will always be something coming back. But the only thing that will come back is this just this power of, of constant change um, and metamorphosis that the only thing that you can come back to is the idea that everything will change. Yeah. And in this sense, when Hawk says this is something you never want to know about, it could be the idea of just, you know, this fact of of existence that, you know, you will not exist someday. And this place that you've invested in and built so much, you know, uh, upon will just be erased. I, I don't know how this might relate to Judy and... And the kind of, you know, mysticism of the show or mythology. But I think there's something in there in in terms of how this could be an ending to the whole series. Yeah. Because that's the way it's, it's looking like. Yeah. It doesn't look like there's going to be a, a season two of The Return. No, no. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin recently went on record and said... Uh, along the lines of, I know for a fact that there is no, not even discussions going on of, yeah. the, of the of season two. I don't think that's the end all and be all. Well, here's a question for you then. Do you think that the way that this show ended turned off a lot of people and maybe they wouldn't want to watch another season if it were to come out because they just feel like they'd be burned again with not getting any answers that they want? I think if you're a fan of David Lynch, it's kind of expected that this mm-hmm. this will happen. Um, I, yeah, you're right. I read something recently. It was a someone someone who wrote, um, "If you sign up for David Lynch, you de- you deserve everything you get." Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm quite happy to be. I, I remarked to you while we were watching this, like I could watch a whole season yeah. of this mystery because it felt like a a Twin Peaks episode, a good twin or a good Twilight Zone episode, without just like tying up all the loose ends at the the end of the show. Um, there are a lot of threads dangling, though. Yeah. Um, there's Audrey. There's Billy. There's Judy. There's a lot of things that have that aren't resolved in, in a really, even for Lynch, like mm-hmm. kind of a, a satisfying way. I yeah. mean, I think if Lynch knew the show was ending, for sure, I have a feeling he would address the Audrey thing in more... I mean, it, it's kind of a delicious mystery right now because right. she's in this white room. She's woken up somehow. There is, she's not, what it's, we see is not reality. It's unlike anything we've seen in Twin Peaks before because when people typically go somewhere, it's typically the White Lodge or the Black Lodge or, mm-hmm. you know, the Velvet Room or whatever you want to call it. Mm. But she is just in some place I don't think we've ever seen before. It's just complete, just white all around her we really don't even see enough to to say anything yeah. about it but we do know this thread this thread is kind of dangling there yeah and, uh, and uh, it happens at the roadhouse too which yeah. kind of makes you question how much of that is going on how much of that is re- actually happening is actually real yeah and as well as just the the richard and linda thing the two birds with one stone mm-hmm. i mean there are so many things that they could easily make another season out of um it might be a good question to ask Though, if this show is not or has not been, you know, a, a game changer like the original series was in terms of like capturing the zeitgeist of the time, yeah, has it been a game changer in terms of just TV and the relationship between TV and cinema? Because I think it has, and I think 
there's a kind of critical consensus that this this show has changed things forever for TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that because I don't know how many people are actually going to continue to follow in these footsteps. So I don't know what kind of lasting effect it will have. I think what I can say more confidently, I think it is a a result of where TV is now as the new cinematic medium. Because whereas movies kind of tend to be more, you know, movies are kind of content to just be amusement park rides right, right now. Uh, TV shows like Breaking Bad and TV shows like Twin Peaks are the new cinematic medium. And I think this is more a result of that. But I think it's a bit too early to tell if it's changed TV forever. We're going to have to see what TV shows follow after that, after this, and see um, did Twin Peaks influence anything? See, I, I think it already has. I mean, I think the minute that episode eight aired, mm-hmm. um, which was described as an atomic bomb of an episode, yeah, it really was. Um, the minute that aired, TV was changed in terms of what the kind of uh, consensus of what could be shown on TV was about because as great as shows like Mad Men and, and Breaking Bad were, they still followed kind of a gentleman's agreement in terms of what TV was about. We will make these characters, which, you know, their kind of arcs are based on the episodic nature and uh, of, of the show in terms of seasons. Um, and they are kind of, you know, boundary-pushing stories in terms of content. Um, But they're just, they're kind of a writer's medium. I mean, uh, Matthew Wiener and and Vince Gillian are writers. And so they're designing it around just what happened in the 1950s in the golden age of TV, which is you just have really good writers who are writing shows, as well as getting good directors to realize them Mm -hmm. and great actors. But it's really starting with as a writer's medium. And when you have episode eight, and really the whole series in retrospect, it becomes a director's medium as much as it's a writer's medium. Because Breaking Bad, Mad Men, these, these great shows changed the rules for what kind of writing was allowed on television. Twin Peaks changed the rules for what kind of visuals and what kind of cinema was allowed on television. Mm-hmm. And... It kind of said, like, okay, there are no rules. There are no differences between TV and cinema. Let's go all the way with that. We will have a 20-minute segment inside of a nuclear bomb where it's just pure visual and, and, uh, and the, you know, the uh, song, the victims for, uh, the threat and for the victims of, of Hiroshima, the Pendereki piece, which is just this, you know, extreme overload of sens- uh, sensory overload. And to have something that, you know, is as kind of like groundbreaking as the Stargate sequence from 2001, just on a TV show, yeah, was kind of unthinkable until Lynch did it and Lynch and Frost did it. Right. And I think going forward, um, TV is not just going to be defined as, you know, really good writing and controlled by writers, it's going to become a truly um, cinematic experience in terms of being just as much a visual and directorial thing as a writer's thing. 
I hope so. I mean, I, I would love it if TV goes into that direction. Um, but I think what David Lynch and Mark Frost accomplished, especially David Lynch as the director of these episodes, is outstanding. I think it's too early to tell if it will actually make that difference. Just based on the critical consensus, I think what you'll see is directors, writers, um, you know, TV producers being inspired by it before audiences really catch up to it. I think this is like, you know, a lot of great cinema and TV. It's ahead of the audience. When you have a show that in the original run was totally groundbreaking in terms of what sort of stuff could be seen on television, and then a new a revival of that series that just kind of leapfrogs all this amazing television to be the most original sort of television, that's an amazing thing. Part 8 was an absolutely outstanding piece of television i i'd never i've never seen anything like it that's just the consensus i mean nobody who watches episode eight walks away feeling unchanged yeah it's just kind of one of these moments where you ask yourself what did i just see <laughs> you know how can i even comprehend this like how can i make sense of it and the fearlessness in terms of expecting and and respecting an audience enough to say, yeah, I, they will be comfortable asking themselves not only like, what does this mean, but what is this? And I think that's very important because in an era of movies now where audiences are being spoon-fed every stupid bit of information, like with the new Han Solo spinoff movie coming that will answer the, the question that nobody asked is, <laughs> how did he and Chewie ever meet? Right. You know, we are being spoon-fed all of this information and I can really admire and respect and appreciate David Lynch for not spoon-feeding us anything. Yeah. He's offering us a spoon, hiding it somewhere, and letting us find it. It's a, it's a sign of someone who respects the audience. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, to have a show that's, that's both extremely relevant but also extremely challenging is a great thing. Um, it might be a good time to, to kind of look back mm -hmm. on the return and, and talk about your top moments. Let's say top five moments. Sure. Uh, what do you think? Why don't you start first with your number five? So my number five, I would have to say, would be the relationship between the, the Blue Rose Task Force. Mm -hmm. um, first, we have a great you know return of, of Gordon Cole and Albert. Yep. And then Tammy, who's, I think, a great addition. Yeah. And then Diane comes into it, and Laura Dern and David Lynch are just a... They're a power team. They're, they're amazing every time they do anything yeah. together. And to see this team assembled with you know such an odd, odd working methods, and so much of it was so funny to see them back uh, together. For me, that was, that was number five. Okay. My number five would be maybe Mr. Jackpot's. Okay. I was a big fan of part three. A big part of that was Mr. Jackpots when uh, when Dougie just keeps winning at the slots. Right. Just him pulling down that lever and just shouting, hello, you know, and then just winning all this money. Right. Lynch can so seamlessly bounce from horror to comedy in the span of a few seconds. Right. You know? Right. And this is some. this was some really good comedy some really funny stuff coming out of uh, an otherwise really bizarre episode so that's why mr jackpots gets my number five spot okay uh number four i would have to say would be maybe evil cooper mm -hmm. um i i really loved what kyle mclaughlin and lynch did with Evil yeah. cooper in terms of how he's portrayed 
Um, I think they worked a lot on making him distinct. But yeah. McLaughlin's portrayal of it and the the writing that was given for this character, the situations he was put in were, were so dark and just truly felt evil. Uh, I love his first appearance mm-hmm. when you get that song playing and it's a Lynch remix that's been slowed down to you know the great arm wrestling scene. It's absurd and horrifying and and cool at the same time. And basically, the whole setup of where they took um, the end of the original run and made this character who's just such a force for evil, but also just so driven. There's, there's a great line early on where he's talking with Ray, his henchman, and about the coordinates, he said, uh, yeah, I'll get the coordinates you need. He says, no, I don't need anything. I want them. Yeah. <laughs> and it just really suggests how he's just a, an embodiment of pure desire, unfettered by any sort of social norms or, or anything. And yeah. I, I loved what McLaughlin did with that fantastic performance. Kyle McLaughlin's your number four. Well, since you've done that, I'll say my number four is Philip Jeffries. Yeah. I, I loved Philip Jeffries in this show. It's a pity that David Bowie passed away before he could film his scenes. Right. But David Bowie has such a distinctive face and right. such a distinctive personality. There's no way they could have cast anyone else right. to be Philip Jeffries. No way. No, it's so true. You know. So uh, Lynch does what he does very well. Um, he just recast Philip Jeffries. He recast David Bowie as a giant tea kettle. Yeah, and for some reason it just worked. I thought it was really cool um, when when Dale Cooper and um, and the one armed man are walking through the trees, which is also uh, you know the convenience store. The convenience store. Um, I got this tingle. I got this sense of emotion, like something huge was going to happen. Like it's finally Cooper seeing Philip Jeffries again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philip Jeffries is my number four. Yeah, and also the the way that they incorporated what was really a, a huge kind of loose end or totally inexplicable moment in Fire Walk With Me where Philip Jeffries appears in Philadelphia in the FBI office and he yeah. says, who do you think that is there? Oh, I know. And to go back to that and, and contextualize it in terms of, is this evil Coop already? Yeah. Is he from, he's from the past, but maybe from the future. Um because that might explain why he's in two places at once on the security camera. Yeah, and to explain that, to have a, an explanation 25 years in the making or yeah. longer. and, and Genius. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. What's your number three? On to number three, I'd have to say episode eight. Okay. And just what it meant for TV. Um, the show as well, in terms of just kind of the mythology of Twin Peaks which I was never a big fan of trying to delve deep into mm-hmm. what the mythology meant. I was always more of a fan of David Lynch's kind of just surrealism where he would come up with these ideas um, and just do them without needing to explain to himself or others what they meant. Because mm-hmm. they, they retain such a mystery and, and they're so powerful. Right. Episode 8 managed to kind of provide a mythical foundation to some of these people like Bob um, to Laura, to the White Lodge, the giant, the, the fireman. Yeah, the fireman, that was what I was going to mention. And, um, you know, to give them a kind of background and a history and also to to isolate 
a specific moment in time um, to carry the social critique that was going on in the return in terms of what has happened, um, you know, to small town America, to carry that back to, you know, the pre-war period um, and to kind of tie that in with the the post-war boom and bust um, was important, but also just in terms of what it did for TV, in mm-hmm. terms of there are no rules anymore. Yeah. You can show these things on TV. You can bring all the power of experimental cinema to television. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say my number three is having the opportunity to meet Diane. Meeting Diane was something I never expected. Right. Because in the original series, Diane is not much more than just the name of the tape recorder right. that Coop is using. It's kind of like naming your diary. Uh, to really personalize Diane and to have Diane be this really strong, cynical woman um, who just has is just bursting with personality and just is one of the most the strongest characters in the entire series uh, was a real was a real treat to watch, especially being portrayed by Laura Dern. Yeah, no, there's not enough praise that can be laid at the feet of Laura Dern. Yeah, I mean, she's just incredible. Really, really fantastic. And she's been incredible in Blue Velvet and Inland Empire, and she's incredible again. Wild at Heart, she was fantastic in, and she's she's at her best, arguably, here. Yeah. Um, What's your number two? Number two, I would have to say, would be how Lynch and Frost were able to make the show so profound mm-hmm. as a comment on America, as a comment on the remake culture of, of modern TV and also have it be interesting and compelling and profound. They, they did such an amazing balancing act. The setup and the writing and the execution of this show, totally the TV of the future. My number two is a tie between Gordon Cole's Monica Bellucci dream mm-hmm. and Gordon Cole's turnip joke. Because they're both very significant moments. Because the Monica Bellucci dream is significant because that really kind of shows you just how much they're inter- they're incorporating Fire Walk with me. You could have forgotten about that line that we talked about where Philip Jeffrey says, who do you think that man is? Yeah. But then when you watch that and you think, oh my gosh, like, have they planned this for 25 years? Right. Is it just something that they latched on to or did they, how long have they known about this? How long have they been planning this? Right. That's a very significant moment. And the turnip joke, not only is it just uproariously funny, I, I, I giggled much more than I thought I should at that, <laughs> the turnip joke, um, in large part because of Albert's reaction and Gordon just ending it with, sometimes I worry about you, Albert, but in large part because I also think that's kind of a metaphor for what the whole season was about. Yeah, and and you know we mentioned that in the yeah. the kind of like theories about what this was all yep. about. Yep. And uh, your number one moment. My number one moment, uh, controversial, I would say, is the last episode. Okay. Um, and I love it because it works as a setup to another season, which I think would be really good. This I kind don't of think new- it's gonna happen though. Well, leaving that aside, I mean, <laughs> if it is, yeah, it's. It would be such a juicy story to mm-hmm. latch on to, this kind of uh, noirish road trip story with Cooper and Laura Palmer and this 
alternate field of existence and Judy, which, I mean, that was such an interesting and horrifying presence, yeah. that mother uh, character. I'd, I'd love to see that be a part of a, a new season. But if it is the ending, it works because it just is so, you know, mind-blowingly full of mystery and... There's so much that has to be thought about and, and untangled for what this means if it is the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love being in the mystery. And I think that's a very controversial ending for sure. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of fans, such as yourself, uh, loved it and a lot of fans hated it. Oh, sure. I think there, are, there must be so many fans who just are, who watched that final episode and just thought, what did I just devote 18 hours of my life for? Right. If I didn't get any answers. Um, nothing happened, and we're just back where we started. Right. Uh, I'm sure it enraged a lot of people. Well, <laughs> uh, what's your number one, Mike? My number one would be the only the only moment in the whole series I actually started applauding was uh, Dale Cooper's return when he pulls that tube out of his mouth and jumps <laughs> out of bed, and uh, the one-armed man asks, are you awake? And he says, 100%. Right. Because as a fan, just as a, a fan, that was a moment I'd been waiting for. Right. Because I remember remarking about part four, part five, just thinking, all right, Dougie Jones is kind of fun, but I'm kind of ready for a change. Right. Like I'm ready for something to to happen. And that's when it finally happened. At the end of part 16, I didn't know how brief it was going to be, uh, but then it didn't matter. It was just, it was great to see Kyle McLaughlin back as Dale Cooper ready to go. Yeah, that was a great moment. It was such a moment of triumph. It was. It was cathartic. It was it was a rare moment in the the series where everything that people wanted, yeah, was given to them at least for a brief moment. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be my number one moment cuz I was watching it alone and I I started applauding. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know. I think a lot of people did. Yeah. Um yeah, fantastic moment and it was great to have a glimpse of you know the old cooper back yeah. in action yeah it was really good thanks for discussing the new twin peaks with me tim thanks mike it's been a lot of fun yeah i don't think i'll ever be the same <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> hopefully not it's changes for the better and uh that's what the tv does see you next time